would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. It's part of the conversation in the upper room that Luke gives us. So Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 34, and following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing the glory of Patri printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Before I get into this, uh, we've had kind of a full service. I guarantee you we're going past noon. But I've got an abbreviation of my sermon Mark Mursky's the only one that's going to get, uh, have heard the whole thing. Well, Diana, too. But at any rate, we'll, there's just a couple points I really want to make, so we're going to do those for sure. Uh, we're coming to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we began with that wonderful question, what is your only comfort in life and death, that I, both body and soul, and life and death belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it covered the depth of our sin and misery, how we might be delivered from our sin and misery, and then how we might show gratitude to God for that deliverance. And our gratitude has been covered in the form of the uh, Ten Commandments and now the Lord's Prayer. And so we come to this final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Remember those first three petitions are directed to the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And these last three have to do with your needs. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And now lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's kind of an all-encompassing, all-inclusive prayer. Not in minute detail of everything, but in the large categories. We need sustenance to keep us going. We need, uh, so physically, we need provision. Spiritually, we need provision because we need to be forgiven for our sins and cleansed of our unrighteousness. And this last one, uh, to me, is more, it's a prayer for God to keep us. We're on the path. Uh, We're nourished physically. We've been cleansed spiritually. We're on the path. We need God's great help to keep us on the path. And the challenge that faces us is temptation and the battle with the evil one. Now, I will not be able to answer all the questions or objections you might have to this particular question or issues that might come up in your mind. But there are two points, two ideas that I want to bring to your attention that I think are crucial for our help in dealing with this particular petition. 
The first is, what is it that we're really asking God for? When we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. What is it that we're asking? We're asking, and the, the, I think the answer to that is we're asking God to keep us, particularly in the hour of temptation. We are asking God to give to us, to do with us what Jesus promised to do for Peter when he had that conversation with him there on the upper room. And it was the occasion of where Peter and the other disciples and all their braggadocio were saying, uh, I will not deny you. Uh, Jesus had said they would be dispersed. They would run away. Oh, I won't run away from you. Peter says, I'll follow you to prison and even to death. And uh, it's not just he that said that. All the disciples were saying the same thing. And Jesus did that prediction to, to Peter. This night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. <clears throat> but he had given him a promise. Uh, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to test you or to sift you as wheat. Satan wanted to shake Peter so hard to shake him loose from the moorings of his faith, to shake him loose from the connection to his blessed Savior. And Satan wanted to try him and test him and tempt him to deny the Lord. And uh, Jesus is referring to him as Simon. It's his name given by birth. Perhaps is an implication that Peter that night was not going to act according to his new nature in Christ, but he was going to act according to his human nature in the fear and the dread that was going to face him. Uh, Jesus uh, promised that to Simon that he had prayed for him. We want Jesus to be praying for us. And, of course, Scripture encourages us that, that he does. But he did not pray, Jesus did not pray that Peter would be kept from testing. And Jesus did not pray that he would not stumble and fall. But Jesus did pray that his faith would not utterly fail. I add the word utterly because in the context, in the promise of the restoration, it's clear Jesus is praying. His faith is going to fail that night. But Jesus' prayer is to keep him, that he would not utterly fall away. And his prayer for Peter was confident because he says to Peter, and when you are restored, the older translations have when you are converted, doesn't mean conversion in the sense of becoming a Christian. It means to turn back when, Peter, you have turned back. Not if you turn back, but when you turn back, then he has a job for him, strengthen your brothers. And so we have this fact that Peter was going to be tested and he was going to fail, but Christ prayed that he would be restored. 
and that his renewal would be in his grace. And so we're praying that God would keep us even through temptation, even when we stumble and fall, that he would keep us ultimately in his care for glory. It's not God's plan that you will never be tested. It's also not God's plan that you never fall. That would, of course, be the ideal. But there are some things that can be learned only when we fall on our face. And only then do we really learn. But it is God's plan that we not utterly fall. It is God's plan that he keeps us ultimately by his grace and in his grace. And so what are we asking for in this request? We're asking, Lord, keep us by your grace. The second point that I really want to underscore is there is a proper distinction between testing and temptation. Now, there would be those who would quibble that I'm just arguing about words, but I think it's a, a significant truth and a significant point that there is a definite distinction between being tested and being tempted. And I want you to turn to James chapter 1, if you would. James chapter 1. And in James 1 verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So there's the word trials. Keep that in your minds. And then skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In that word, verse 12, you have trial and you have tests. Same word as the word trial in verse 2. Same word, maybe a different form, but the same word in verse 12 for trial and test. Now let's move on to verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in those verses, 13 through 15, several occurrences of the word temptation It's the same word. It's the same word used in the earlier verses for trial and testing. It's the same word. But it's proper to translate it temptation because in those verses 13 to 15, it's talking about being lured away to do something wrong. Being lured away to do something evil. And the very same circumstance will be on the one hand, testing by God, or and, and often include temptation by the evil one. 
God does test and try his children. But he always has a good and holy and beneficial purpose. Always. When God allowed Satan to test Job, it was not for Job to be harmed or destroyed. It was for him to be made stronger, which he was by the end. Satan tempts people, and he always has an evil, an ungodly, and a destructive purpose. And so you have the same circumstance that God can be using for a good and holy purpose in your life, but Satan could use that same circumstance, but he would want to destroy you. Thomas Watson writes, God permits sin, but does not promote it. God tries his people's grace, but he does not excite their corruption. The devil tempts us to deceive us. God lets us be tempted to try us. Augustine said, he who is not tempted is not tested. He parallels the two things together. Zacharias or Sinus, the author of uh, this catechism, says, temptation from God is a trial of our faith. Temptation from Satan is a solicitation to do wrong. Now, just as, as an example, when a teacher gives a student a test, the goal of that teacher is not for the student to fail. The goal of that teacher in that test is, for one thing, to find out what the student knows. In a sense, it's perhaps a test of the teacher as well. How well did they communicate the material? But it's not intended to, te- to have the child or have the student do wrong. It's not for them. The, the, the purpose of the test isn't for, for them to fail. It's for them to succeed. But sometimes they will fail. And they will learn by the failure, hopefully anyway. They will learn maybe how to study better. Maybe there's something about the subject that puzzles them and they need a little added help, whatever it might be. But the, the purpose of the test is not to make them fail. It's not to entice them to do wrong. Satan would use that test and say, well, you ought to cheat. You ought to look on your neighbor's paper. You ought to, if it's a, 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 an exam at home online, well, you need to open your book. You're not supposed to. Go ahead and open it. Look at it. Find it. Satan will want to use that same test, but he will want to cause you to do wrong. And you take, can take the same circumstance and turn it into a, a test by God or a temptation by the evil one. It was true in Peter's life. He was going to be tested that night. Will he stand for the Lord or will he not? And he failed the test and went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus had prayed for him. And so he didn't abandon the faith. By the next day, he's back with the disciples. He didn't abandon the faith. Jesus prayed for him. Jesus' prayer was successful. But Peter had something to learn 
through that failure. And it was God's uh, purpose for Peter that he would grow stronger because God was going to use him to be a mighty leader in God's church. And Peter needed both the humility of failure and the courage of restoration to lead God's church in the future days. Um, We are told by Paul, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it. And you and I have to learn through the process of temptation and the testing that comes, we have to learn that there is no temptation that's taken us except it's common to man. We want to say, no one's suffered like me. That's not true. Other, many other people have suffered like you. Maybe worse. And God will provide a way of escape. But sometimes we bail too soon. Sometimes we give in too quickly. We're not holding on and looking for that way of escape that God has promised to give us. And God has a good purpose in all of this. There's a very important paragraph in our Westminster Confession of Faith that I want you to look at. It's on page 851 in your hymnal. So if you want to set your Bible down, pick up your hymnal, turn to page 851 in the back. It's uh, one paragraph that I'm, I'm, I am really pretty fond of it, though it says some hard things for us, <clears throat> but I find it very helpful as well. Uh, there are five important things that this paragraph is going to tell us, but it begins in this way. So it's, excuse me, chapter five on providence and paragraph five. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts. And I'm going to pause at different times through this answer. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I want to cry out, God, why? Why would you do that? Why do I have to go through that? Why does it have to be so hard? I mean, haven't you said that sometime? Lord, why does it have to be so hard? Well, he tells us why. Five reasons that God allows that to take place. The first is to chastise them for their former sins. It may be that a certain calamity or a certain difficulty that's come your way is God disciplining you. It never hurts to examine yourself, to reflect on your dilemma. And what is it that God might be teaching you? Is there a sin that you need to repent of? Do you need to confess? But I do want to say we need to be careful not to overdo this particular point. There are times when there is a difficulty, an illness, a problem that comes your way. And it's not about any particular sin. It's just that it's something God's taking you through to learn something. If there was a child, a little one, who had a heart defect, 
it would be very inappropriate for us to say God is judging that child or even that God's judging the parents. Uh, If we take the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus said it, it was not the disciples thought it had to be somebody's sin. And Jesus said, no, nobody's sin. It's not the sin of the parents. It's not the sin of the child. It's for the glory of God. So while this is a very important point, and I don't want to minimize it, and we need to use it to edify us, we need to reflect, is God disciplining us through this difficulty? We don't need to hurry into that. We don't need to assume that's true in every, se- in every case. It may be simply God has another purpose for us in that. So the first is to chastise them for their former sins. The second is to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. We are such liars to ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time. Oh, I can understand this. I can get this. I know better than that person does. Uh, we, we talk to ourselves and we say things that, that are not true. And why does God allow us to go through a time of testing and trial and temptation? It's so that we might come to know and be humbled and come to know the deceptive and deceitfulness of our own heart. We need to be humbled before the Lord And he allows this testing and tempting to accomplish that. The third is to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. You and I need to be reminded, and we are reminded, so often we need God and his help. We can't make it without it. And sometimes the trial and the testing is designed to do that, to make us understand how desperately we need God. And we passionately turn back to him to claim his grace and his mercy. The fourth thing is to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Particularly when we fall, it's to make us alert for the next occasion to sin. If this thing causes me to sin, then I need to watch out for it and I need to stay away from it. I need to guard myself from it. And we we tend to let our guard down sometimes, and we we tend to 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 get caught up in things we knew we knew better. And afterwards, we we would know we would remember. No, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, there, the disciples were with Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and they fell asleep. And Jesus says to them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to watch and pray. We have to be alert for future occasions to sin and be stimulated uh, to to guard against that. And the fifth one is sort of a catch-all and for sundry other just and holy ends. It's God has, as the infinite God, he has innumerable ways to to work his his will in our hearts and lives. And 
And it's whenever we're going through a challenge, a temptation or a trial for us to think, is God at work? Well, God is at work. How, How is God at work in my heart and in my life? What discipline is he trying to work out in me? Uh, How am I to improve and to grow? How can I know and love the Lord more and more? Uh, We pray in this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, The evil has an article in front of it, the evil. That's why some of your translations have the evil one. It's a reminder that we are in a spiritual battle. We've kind of already talked about that, but Paul says, we wrestle not against principalities and powers, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're in a spiritual battle. And we're not, it's not that we need to fear Satan, it's not that we need to fear him, but we need to not teach, treat him in disregard. We need to take seriously, we have an enemy who's a, like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And we have the great reminder of that 1 John 4, 4. Uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, the Antichrist, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You, God restrains the power of evil and the, his power is at work in you. And so you're dealing with the spiritual battle, this war, the spiritual warfare. You're dealing with the trials and the temptations that come your way. And you can be confident that God will be with you in it and enable you by his grace ultimately to overcome. Because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. We're weak sinners. What G.I. Williamson says, this petition is for weak sinners who don't trust themselves, but who want to win the victory that overcomes the world. We confess the, the warfare. We confess our... our um, our dependence on the providence of God. We need this prayer. We need to pray this prayer. Uh, We're in a battle. But perhaps the greatest example of why we need to pray this prayer is, is in our great example, our great Savior Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what is it that he prayed? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he praying? He's praying, deliver me from the evil one. Don't let me fall into his hands. There's this terrible cup that is laid before me. Let, don't let me fall into that. Don't let me be taken by that. Let this cup pass from me. Deliver me from the evil one. God the Father is going to say, no, you have to drink the cup. But Jesus prays, nevertheless, not as my will, but your will be done. Thomas Watson has a very succinct comment that's kind of the end of the matter here at this point. He says, 
It's a great reminder. Our Lord did not fail in his testing because he did not fail in his praying. Is it that we fail in our testing because we failed in our praying? Jesus didn't fail because he didn't fail to pray. The conclusion of the prayer brings us full circle. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's not in the oldest Greek manuscripts, which is why you don't find it probably in your copy of Matthew, except if you have the King James or New King James in Matthew. But it's a valid conclusion to the prayer as we use it in our catechism and as we use it in our praying and worship. It's a part of the church from its earliest days, and it's a biblical truth. His is the kingdom, his is the power, and his is the glory. Forever, amen. And uh, the uh, definition of amen in the Heidelberg Catechism to me is the, uh, there are others, it's the greatest, I think, maybe the, Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in in my heart I desire these things of him. Isn't that a marvelous way to say it? Do you desire the things you pray for? Have you ever got on your knees before God and you're just crying out to God and you desperately desire the things that are on your hearts? Well, amen means it's more certain God heard that prayer than you want it. A great confidence in our Heavenly Father to pray for the glory of God and know that he hears us. May you and I use this pattern for prayer as a help to ourselves to, to live a life of prayer that brings glory and honor to God and uh, encourages us in our walk of faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the abundance of your love and mercy. We uh, thank you for all that you teach and train us in, in our lives. Thank you for the, the gift of prayer. And we do pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to, to learn even through the times of testing and be strengthened with our hope in, in you, our hope in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.